Hey, if you have a Bible, would you open them to Matthew 22? We're going to spend a little time talking about one of my favorite passages today, but I do want to put out a disclaimer for my theologians. This is a family service, and so today I really want the children to be with us through every point. And so as we move through here, obviously each verse I share we could unpack and we could spend a lot of time on, but I just want to do a high-level survey today to encourage your hearts. So children, I have a question for you before we get going. How many of you saw snow today? Did anybody see snow? All right, Rusty, I saw some snow too. And it was a lot of fun. And I want to encourage you, and I want to let you know something, kids. Did you know when I lived in Alaska, I used to teach a class called Snow Science? And it was a lot of fun. We got to talk about all the different individual things about snow, the strengths, the weaknesses, how it can be good, and also how it can be very dangerous. But the one thing I want you kids to know today is that every piece of snow is unique, and there's never been a snowflake identically the same. And when I think about that, I think that's kind of a cool analogy for every one of us. I look at Brother Ken out there I've known for a while. There's never been another Brother Ken. And his wife's like, thank the Lord. (laughs) But did you know that's something to celebrate? You're unique and special. And to emphasize that even a little more, that means God made you on purpose the way you are. So that's something to celebrate. But here's the sobering news when we think of snow. Just like the snow that was all over, pretend snow that's out there on the sidewalk, it doesn't last very long. Pretty soon it's going to be gone. And so each one of our lives is very brief. And that can be a very sobering thing when we're little to think about. But even for the older boys and girls, it's very important for us to remember that according to God's word, Proverbs 27, verse 1, we're not boast about tomorrow, for we do not know what a day will bring forth. So today's the day we want to live for the Lord. Today's the day we want to do those things that he's challenged us to do and to live for him. So keep that in mind as we think about snow. And yes, I just wanted to do snow just because I thought it would be fun. There was no deep theological thing beyond. I thought it was kind of cool. But I'm also thankful that we can be a church family where we can just celebrate and do some fun things like that for the kids. So I hope you guys had fun. The basics to me really fall back on what I learned in the military. And I know there's lots of military units. There's lots of men and women that have served. But in the SEAL teams, there were three things that were overemphasized to us to help us survive in combat. That was to shoot well, to move, and to communicate. We were taught to shoot in every type of environment. And we shot really hard all different types of weapons so that we would be prepared. We also trained really hard on how to move, from jumping out of planes to locking out of submarines, uh, to you know, skiing in the snow, to walking in the new, using different vehicles in the desert, to navigating in the jungles. We wanted to move better than anyone else. We would even take time to learn how to do ice climbing on waterfalls, just in case we need to climb up a waterfall to sneak in somewhere. We wanted to move really well. And then we also wanted to communicate. We wanted to have primary plans, secondary plans, tertiary plans, and then even a LASA comms plan if we couldn't talk at all. And so those three things are what kept us alive on the battlefield and not all the fancy stuff you might be thinking about. It was the basics. And as I think about the church and I think about the basics, I think it would be really good for us to remember a verse that landed on my heart five years ago when God called me to come to this location. And that's Matthew 22 starting in verse 37, where Jesus summarized 
the two commandments that are the most important that summarize the entire Bible. So let's take a look at Matthew 22 now and allow me to read verses 37 through 40. This is the word of God. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as I arrived five years ago, five and a half years ago, I prayed and I asked God for a little guidance, being the interim, trying to help you guys find a pastor, not knowing it was going to be me. And I really landed on this passage because I thought, no matter who that next guy is, teaching a congregation to love God and to love others probably is pretty sound doctrine when you think that's how Jesus summarized the known Bible at the time. And so that's what we landed on. And I also know that as a leader, I'm like a little cog. If you're familiar with gears and machines, I know that if the message is to get across as a leader, I got to spin that same message over and over and over. And it took a couple years before I started hearing people in the congregation say, we need to love God and love others. And now the big cog, which is the church, I hear saying here, love God and love others a lot. But here's the deal I also want to be super sensitive to and lead you well as a pastor, and that's this. If all we say is love God and love others, it becomes a slogan, and it's like me grabbing this suitcase handle, but no suitcase comes with it. There's no content. It's just a slogan. It's just a phrase, and honestly, it means nothing. So we don't want to just have love God, love others as a slogan. It has to have content, and there is content in this suitcase. And if you see on the slide there, when you love God and love others, there's evidence, there's life, and that life can be beautiful, and it can change the life of others. And so that's the kind of church that we want to be, and having the privilege to be able to preach from any passage today, this is where I feel called just to bring us back to the basics today. So let's ask God to bless the remainder of our time. Let's go to him in prayer now. Father God, I come to you knowing how frail and fragile I am and that I desperately need you to work through me now so that I can edify your people to build up the boys and girls of all ages. So Father, would you speak through me now and your word and would you be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me emphasize too, this is a family-friendly service, so as long as you're not anxious about noises, then please keep the children in here. I'm way okay with it. I'm not only a dad that survived three teenagers, I'm also a grandpa. I love children. And so don't be anxious for me. That is strictly something that you figure out at your own family level, okay? All right, so today the message is called The Basics. And specifically, if you see up there, seven values of a gospel advancing church. So we're going to have seven little notes. Children, if you got that piece of paper where you're taking notes, there's going to be seven big words we're going to use today. And so you can jot those down. But a friend of mine who spent over 25 years in youth ministry, he narrowed down the thriving youth ministries as adopting these seven values. And these seven values are what I shared with you five years ago so that we could be a church that it's a gospel advancing church. So the very first value is intercessory prayer fuels it. And for the little boys and girls, that's a big word, but it simply means that we pray on behalf of others. Look at Acts 1 verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I have learned that we need to be a people that infuse our lives with worship and prayer. We also must learn to talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. 
one of the greatest mistakes we can make is when we just go run out and start talking to people about God instead of spending a little bit of time talking to the Lord in advance so that he can prepare their hearts so that it will be receptive to the word of God. Now, to give you an example that has helped me, and I shared with my buddy that came up with these values, uh, years ago, about 10 years ago, when I retired from the military, my wife said that I could get a truck because she knew I'd been driving that little thing to Parallel Park in D.C., and so she cleared me hot to get a black Toyota truck. And you know what I did? I took her car, and I traded it in on a black Toyota truck. Now, that was a marriage problem I made a mistake on, and so I, I learned a few lessons in that. I probably should have asked her first, but I got a black truck out of the deal. And so I was pretty excited. As a matter of fact, I still drive it. It's still going. But here's the deal. Did you know the day I bought that truck, I saw black trucks everywhere. They just started popping up like someone copied me. But I also have learned this. When I start thinking about the car we drive and how it matches of all the other people that we see around, now think about your prayer life. When you pray for lost people, you know what happens? You see lost people, and God starts bringing them your way. The question is, are we going to be a people who care enough to pray for lost people? Every one of you, I bet, have family that are lost. Every one of you probably have friends that don't know the Lord Jesus. They're not ready to meet him today. So are we going to care enough to talk to God about those people before we talk to those people about God? That's something that we need to prayerfully consider as we think about intercessory prayer and how it fuels it. The second value is relational evangelism drives it. So we got the fuel. We know we need to spend time on our knees in prayer. Now we need to drive it with relational evangelism. Consider Acts 18, verse 26 as an example. He, being Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, we don't have time to unpack what all the theologians think about whether or not this was to disciple him better or to lead him to the Lord. There are some opinions on either side. But the bottom line is, from God's word, we know that they, this husband and wife couple brought Apollos into their home, and they taught him the word of God more accurately. We do know that from Scripture. And so one of the things that we can take from that are three things to help us with our relational evangelism. One is to pray with passion. We've talked about that, right? Do we really care? And I even have to do self-evaluation on this. And I'll just tell you, sometimes I can go for several days without weeping for the people I'm praying for. And really, I need to question my own heart. Like, do I actually understand their circumstances and where they're headed? And so we need to be a people who care to, to pray with a passion. But then we also need to pursue them with love. We don't want to be just this handle on a suitcase, right? We actually want to get involved in their lives and pursue them with love. That means in word and deed. And sometimes that's challenging, especially in high school, right? Sometimes it's hard. How do you love someone in high school? That's a challenging environment. And yet that's what we need to learn to do. And then finally, to persuade them with truth. And we know the truth is what? The word of God. That means we need to be in the word of God, memorize the word of God, and actually be able to share it in the right context. We have to be very careful about that. Now, when we moved here, my kids in 2007, uh, when they were going to high school, they said, Dad, we met a Wiccan. And I was like, I don't know what a Wiccan is. So I had to look it up. And a Wiccan is someone who worships nature. 
And I said, all right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to learn how to ask good questions so that we don't just come right off the top rope with a hammer. Let's ask questions about what they believe. Let's find something to admire. Hey, they love nature. Okay, that's not confrontational. But then we go from ask, admire. That last step is to admit that we needed a Savior. And in this case, did you know that Savior is the creator of the universe you love so much? And then you can introduce somebody. And so there's lots of different ways that we can go about this. But it's very important that we get involved personally with relational evangelism. I would give you several examples, but just to summarize some of them, when I was working in the youth ministry, I would look at the teenage girls and i said, say, do you realize you're going to be more effective in sharing Christ in your school than me or some other pastor that comes there? Because those young ladies are watching you. They're going to really understand whether or not you believe what you're talking about. And so young ladies, know that you can have an impact. You don't need a pastor to come share Christ with your friends. Likewise, maybe some of you that are older and retired, do you realize the people in your sphere of influence, they're watching you. Wherever you work, people are watching you. You don't need someone on staff at a church to share Christ with your friends or your family. They need to hear it from you. And that's where relational evangelism comes in, and it's so important. We'll talk more about this later. The third thing is that leaders fully embrace and model it. I know that if I'm not sharing Christ with people, I shouldn't expect you to be sharing Christ with people. Matter of fact, as a pastor, I know sometimes I don't need a bullhorn. I need a mirror. If the church isn't doing something, I need to take a look at my own life. Am I modeling what I'm asking you to do? And so I want to be accountable to you. You should be able to come up to me and say, hey, pastor, when's the last time you shared Christ with someone? And I can tell you. In fact, it was yesterday. But whatever time it is, you know, there might be days where I go without sharing, but it needs to be something where it goes back to that first step, right? Am I praying for lost people? And if you ask for those divine appointments, I promise you, God will bring you lost people to talk to. He's very faithful in that. Look at Luke 6, verse 40, as an example. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So I know not only in the church leadership is it important, but it's also important for every one of you that are leaders. Church group, right? You're holding a church group. People are going to come into your home, and they're going to have questions like, I'm just a little scared. How do you share Christ? And then you're like, ooh, well, I haven't really shared him in a while. And so that's one of those things where we want to lead by example. It's the same thing for parents. Parents. If we're not sharing Christ, if we're not loving God and loving others, should we really expect our children to? Something that we want to pray for courage to live out. That doesn't mean you stop every waiter and waitress and person at the checkout line, but when you sense that calling from God, and if you're a child of God, you probably have felt that nudge like, you need to tell that person about Jesus. That's when you have a decision to be faithful and to share. Obviously, the waiter or the waitress is just running back and forth between tables. It's not the time to pull them aside and get them fired and make them sit and listen to you for five or ten minutes, right? But sometimes there's nothing going on, and you could have that conversation. Fourth point, a disciple multiplication strategy guides it. There's a public example several times in the book of Acts. You think of Acts 2 and Acts 3 where the servants of God, the leaders in the church, are sharing Christ, and people are coming to know him and learning about him. But then there's private times. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 is a good example. Listen to this passage. And you become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now, this may not sound as fancy as some big outreach where you got a well-known pastor and a well-known worship group, but in my experience being part of those things, there's nothing more impactful than a one-on-one conversation with somebody who really loves you. And they can tell if you love them. They can tell if you're trying to check a box, too. I got a small group tonight, so I got to make sure I share Christ so I don't get in trouble. That's not what they're looking for, right? Do you love them? That means you got to put skin in the game, right? Sometimes they need help, and you need to pursue them with love. You need to actually serve them in word and deed. Maybe show up and help them. Give them a ride somewhere. And on and on it goes. What I want to do now is I want to have a little fun. I want to bring up my buddy DJ, and I want to bring up my three volunteers that I spoke about earlier. So I see you guys smiling. Come on down. I need you. The whole church is waiting for you. So come on up. You guys know your chairs. You can scooch them back if you don't feel safe. Just sit down in the chair, grab your object, get comfortable. As promised, you don't have to talk. And then you guys are going to sit over here with my buddy DJ. All right. He don't bite, I promise. I know your mom and dad know him, so that makes it easier. All right. Well, you gonna, you're, you're relieved of your job. That's very cool. All right, guys. Thank you. And so give him a hand because it's a big deal. So when I think of discipleship, I think of four chairs. And this is not super deep, but hang with me. The first young person here has a magnifying lens. Go ahead and look at it, see if you can see your hand. This person is trying to find Jesus. This person could be in your church group. This person could be in our church. If you're here today and you're still trying to find Jesus, I want to encourage you with something. Did you know in all my travels, I've met a lot of professing atheists that I've been able to help turn into agnostics? And I want to tell you how it's easy to move someone. If you're here today and you're an atheist, I'm going to help you discover that you're probably an agnostic. And it goes like this. I'm in a coffee shop. I meet someone, and they're like, they maybe see me with a Bible, and so it creates a conversation. But the bottom line is I get a napkin, and I draw a square. And in that square, I just put a dot, and I say, if this is the known universe, everything you could know, this little dot right here, it's what I know. And do you know what they do? I say, Here's a pen. Why don't you mark what you know? And if they're ornery, sometimes they draw a circle around my dot to show they know more than me. It's probably true. But I then ask them a question. Is it possible that God lives outside of your known existence? Is it possible? And so far, every one of them has said, well, yeah, it's possible. And then I say, congratulations. You're an agnostic. Because you don't know, do you? So we've gone from an atheist to an agnostic. And then I ask a very important question, and I ask it of you today, if you happen to be from atheist to agnostic right now. If God lived outside of your known knowledge, would you want to know him? And if you do, I want to introduce him to you. And that's where we share the gospel, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But if they don't, then that's when we go back to praying with passion and caring about that person. Because only God can cause a dead heart to life, right? And so we don't need to get worked up about that. We go back to praying with passion, talking to God about people before we talk to people about God. So that's someone who's trying to find Jesus. You did a very good job. 
The second person has found Jesus, so you're following Jesus. That's why you've got a compass. A compass is going to represent someone following Jesus. They're a new believer, but what I've discovered over time is that sometimes adults can be followers of Jesus for the rest of their life and stay in chair too. And this is a self-examination time too. As you listen to these chairs, I want you to really ask God, which chair are you sitting in? So this is someone who's following Jesus. They're reading the Bible. They're praying. They're coming to church. And they're following Jesus. But then we get to chair three. We got someone who's fishing for men. Someone who's actually sharing Christ, going out there, who prays with passion, pursues with love, and persuades with truth. This person cares enough to be an evangelist. And he realizes he doesn't need a fancy degree or any other... Uh, boxes to check. He needs to care enough to know that that person's going to hell and he wants to tell them about Jesus. This is our fisherman. And so we got someone who's trying to find Jesus, someone who's trying to find and then follow. We got our fisherman. And then lastly, but not least, we have those who are fruitful. This young lady, she has gone through all these stages and now she's fruitful. She can actually talk to the person who's trying to find Jesus, help them become follower teach them how to fish for men, and then get them to be able to make disciples just like her. These are the four chairs that we're in. And did you realize we want these four chairs in the church groups we've been talking about for so long? When you meet somebody, let's say you've got your group, invite a lost person to come in. Let them see what the church looks like. Let them see what a husband and wife looks like who loves the Lord. Let them see what a husband and wife looks like when they're fussing. I was in David Platt's church group for nine months with all the other pastors, wives, and kids. And sometimes people had things going on in their life. We would spend time praying for one another because when you do groups together, they get messy because we're messy people, aren't we? We've talked about perfect churches, right? None of us would be allowed to attend because we're not perfect. We're a mess. The group I lead on Wednesday night, we call ourselves the misfits. We go around, you want to talk about testimony night? I mean, everyone's like, well, I didn't know you were in jail. I didn't know you were in jail. Like, people go around. I don't try to scare you guys or anything. <laughs> but the bottom line is we want to be known so that we can learn how to go through these chairs and support one another and point each other to the Word of God. It is so important. And so church groups is the vehicle to help us get through these chairs. Church group is what we are really focusing on as a church to help disciple one another. So men can be with men, women can be with women, and then we can see families come together. Will it be perfect? No. Will it be wonderful? You bet it will. It'll be wonderful. Kids, I appreciate your time. You did a very good job. You can just leave your objects in the chairs and join your family. Good job. Look at that. You better not keep that. Only because it's really sentimental. Thanks for asking, though. Always looking for those five finger fight you know, types and take things with them. All right, enough about my whining. Hey, fifth value, a bold vision focuses it. Look at one of my favorite verses, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we could spend all day unpacking this, but... I want to bring you back to 2017 and the bold vision we had when I first arrived. In 2017, I prayed over this passage, and I presented before the church, and most of the church said I was crazy. I said, I want us to have 7,000 gospel conversations. That's what God's placed on my heart. 
And at the end of the year, we had 11,224. 200 people came to know Jesus Christ because you stepped up and actually became awkward and learned that it was awesome when someone came to know the Lord. And so that's what we want to do, right? But not only do we want to share the gospel, the bold vision that's on my heart now is that I desire 100% of the members of this church to be in a church group. That's how important as pastors we believe you being involved in community so that people can care for you and love on you and make sure that you're following Christ like they're following Christ. We want to do this together. And so that's the local goal. But a bold vision, according to Acts 1.8, we need to also think about more than just our own backyard, don't we? We need to think about the world. And so what God has placed on my heart, one, is to educate you on the fact that I know a lot of people are isolationists, and they're like, we're about America. And I have a big, giant flag in my yard. I love America. I served in the military for 26 years. But did you know if all you care about is America, you care for 4.25% of the population of planet Earth? I think God cares for more than that. He cares for every child he's made. And so if we're going to reach those people, we need to have people who go on short-term trips, mid-term trips, and even long-term trips. That column out there, this year we have three pictures, four people on that column who have left this congregation and have gone to different places around the world just this year. We have some people in our church that are training up to go because they felt that call to go tell people about Jesus who have never heard his name, ever. Years ago, I had the privilege of serving in Ethiopia. And when I was in Ethiopia uh, with a couple other people from our church, I ran across some teenage boys that were street orphans. And I challenged them to a feat of strength. And I maybe stacked the deck in my favor. There's a couple things I'm good at. And so I was like, all right, I think I can take these kids. But we did a wall sit. And that's just where you put your back up against the wall and you go 90 degrees. And I won't imitate it up here. That'd be embarrassing. But I had them all doing that. I said, if I win, you guys need to let me tell you a story. If I lose, then you can have all this food I'm carrying with me. They're like, deal. And so knowing I'm going to give them the food anyway, right? So... We sit down, and one by one, they start dropping, except for the ringleader. He's actually got some game. He's 17, and he's like, I'm not going to let this old man beat me. But eventually, I psyoped him, and he fell over. And then I got him all around with a translator. And before I spoke, I felt the Holy Spirit telling me, why don't you ask him if they even know who Jesus is? I don't know how to explain that other than that's just what I thought I heard. And so I said, young men, how many of you know the name of Jesus? And the ringleader, the 17-year-old, the last one to go down, he raised his hand and he talked to the translator and he said, I've never heard this name before. Tell me more. And so that's when I realized I need to go back a little bit to share the gospel. And this is what we need to do with people who've never heard the name of Jesus. If you're here today and you're still exploring Christianity, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And it is sweet. And I've always considered myself as the beggar who's found the bread and I'm just trying to show other beggars where the bread is at. I started with this. The Bible tells us that God has created us to be with him. That's good news. That's really good news, isn't it? The Bible also tells us some bad news, that our sin separates us from a holy God. And I haven't met a rational person yet who won't admit that they've sinned. We've all messed up and done things, haven't we? see a lot of head nodding. Yeah, so you with me? And those in denial, it'll catch up with you. You'll realize we're all sinners. But what makes matters worse is that sins cannot be removed by good deeds. 
And that's kind of something we've bought into here in the West, right? We've been taught from a very young age, if you do this, you get this. But the Bible doesn't teach that about salvation. That is not how it works. And God knew that. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die in your place and to die in mine. But the best news of all is God didn't leave him dead, did he? He raised him from the dead three days later to show he has power over the grave so that we can have hope. And the best news of all, what I love telling people, is that everyone, everyone who places their faith and trust in what Jesus has done can have eternal life and it can begin today. And that's the gospel. It's the good news. And it's sweet. And we should be sharing it and giving it away. Now, we've talked about some of the current missionaries we have on the field, some of the other ones that we have that are in the pipeline working to go overseas. But I want to share what we share with each other when we close our services, the Great Commission. But there's two verses in front of that passage that a lot of times people are not aware of. And so I want to read the whole passage, and I want to discuss it with you briefly. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then this is the part we're familiar with. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What I find profound about that is maybe seven years ago, I taught about 100 men at 6 a.m. in a Bible study on a Wednesday morning. These are men that got up before work to meet for a Bible study. And I shared one little stat that I thought was a bit of an exaggeration, but I read it and I was like, this is interesting. So it's 30 minutes of speaking, preaching, 30 minutes of table discussions. The stat I shared was this, 95% of professing believers have never shared their faith one time. Let that sink in. 95% of those people who have had Jesus save them from their sins have never told one person about it. It's not something to brag about, is it? It's kind of sobering. Which leads us to our next point. Biblical outcomes measure it. Now, sometimes in the church, you'll meet people that grumble when pastors and other leaders in the church try to acquire numbers so they can get stats and stuff. And I can make a pretty good case that numbers are important to God. There is a book called Numbers. Um, And so that's a good starting point. But there's lots of passages where we're learning about numbers coming to know the Lord Jesus. Acts 11, 19 through 24. And then the one I put down today is Acts 2, 47. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now, we don't want to just gather numbers just to gather numbers. We want the data so that we can make good decisions on what we're doing in the church body so we can understand what's going on in your church group, what's going on with these gospel conversations, what's going on here, there. And then, wow, you're leading a group of 10 ladies. How come five have not showed up for the last six weeks? What's going on? Are they okay? How can we help? Things like that are really helpful as leaders. And if we don't have those numbers, then we don't know how to help and come alongside you. So know that they are important. And this leads us to the last step, the last value. Ongoing programs reflect it. Look at Acts 6, 1 through 4. 
Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So one of the things that I use as a lens is I'm always asking the question, what do we start, what do we stop, and what do we refine? And also know, like if you come to me, the major question I have in my mind is how does this further the gospel? You may have a phenomenal idea, and it might be a wonderful thing organically that God's called you to do on your own, but it maybe isn't something that we put on the webpage and say, you know what, this is the number one thing we're going to do as a church. But that's okay. There's lots of things God's called me to do. When I lived in San Diego, I had a street ministry for kids, uh, you know, just in the urban gang environment. Me and another buddy, we just felt called to do that. And the church, they're like, God bless you guys. That's not really, you know, something we're going to put in the bulletin, but we're sure thankful you're meeting with all these boys and uh, take them out into the mountains and teach them stuff about God. And so that's okay. We all have different things maybe that God's called us to do. But the bottom line is we want to be faithful to what he's called us to do to do. So these ongoing programs, you know, in a church, as a leader, I'm always asking the question, what do I start, what do I stop, and what do I refine? Because to be honest, I learned this in the military, we can always do things better. We don't want to just sit back and coast and think, eh, we're good. We always want to strive for excellence to please the Lord. Let me close with a couple thoughts. Today, whether you're a social media person or whether you watch the news, there's no doubt that you've picked up the theme that the world is saying it's all about you. The world is saying you want to please yourself. Everything is about you. But I could make a pretty good argument that's not what the Bible teaches. Specifically from our verse that we studied earlier. Jesus summarized the whole known Bible by saying we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. So I want to ask you a couple questions as you think about that passage. First, do you love the Lord with everything you are, everything you do, and everything you have? And if you're not sure, ask somebody who loves you, who knows you, and ask them, is God evident and first in my life in these areas? And if that person asks you, be truthful. Help them. Because this is first and foremost what we're called to do as believers. And then secondly, do you love others as yourself? Do you pray for others? Do you build others up in your local church? Are you that person that tears people down like the bully? And do you provide for others when you can? And I would say that also extends to those who are not so lovely And the reason I think we need to meditate on that and challenge ourselves with that is we need to remember each and every one of us were not so lovely when we were at war with God. Before we came to know him in a Romans 5-8 kind of way, we were at war with him, and yet he loved us anyway. So those people that are not so lovely in your life, I would challenge you that one of the most powerful portraits of the gospel is you going to them and loving them. It's going to shake them up because they're not going to know why you're loving them, because they know they've been mean to you. Do it anyway, and trust the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Loving God and loving others is not just some nice suggestion for us to consider. They are clear, 
commands. And in a hostile world today, this kind of divine love needs to be displayed more than ever before. Earlier, we learned about the importance of the basics of warfare, shoot, move, communicate, and the basics. And I can make a pretty good case that if you guys were watching a movie about Navy SEALs and you saw 16 men in a platoon and they're getting ready to go out into combat, and then only two of them, two of them kitted up, they put their body armor on and they went and they start engaging the enemy, but the other 14 stood back and watched, wouldn't you think they were insane? You're like, what's wrong with those guys? There's a war going on. Only two out of the 16 are fighting? And yet, if we're to examine the church today, that's exactly what's going on. 10% in a thriving church today serve. 10%. You know what the rest do? They show up and watch. That's hard to say as a pastor, knowing I won't win any friends. But 90% of the church watches this war. They watch knowing that there are spiritual consequences that will last forever. So my challenge to you as a pastor is don't be that 90%. How cool would it be to be a church where maybe at least half the people engage the enemy? Or dare I say a bold vision, all. Every child of God is needed on the battlefield. We need you. The church needs you. And every one of you, if you're a follower of Christ, have been equipped for warfare. Every one of you. And it may look different for each one of you. I'm looking at one brother. I know his wife is a prayer warrior. That's not to be understated. That goes all the way back up to value number one, right? Intercessory prayer fuels it. We need prayer warriors. Bottom line is you can serve on the battlefield if you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not, I invite you to follow him today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this privilege to share briefly from your word and to encourage boys and girls of all ages. I do ask that, uh, that you would, or I just pray that you would be glorified. Ultimately, that's why each and every one of us are here. We're your children, and we so want to glorify you. But Father, I also have a heart for those who possibly are here today that don't know you. May today be the day of salvation where they turn from trusting in themselves and place their faith and trust in what your beautiful, lovely son did for them to die in their place and you raised him from the dead. Knowing that he's the ultimate example, he intercedes for every one of us now. Oh, Father, may you bring dead souls to life now and may you be glorified as we continue to worship you and observe communion as a church body. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.